with my partially constructed research. Hey friends, welcome to episode uh, 12 of Coming Up Next. I trust that you are feeling very well on this wonderful Tuesday or whichever day it is that you are listening to this uh, and wherever you are in the world. Here in Melbourne, where I live, the weather seems to have picked up, which is pretty awesome because, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the cold, but I'm sure if I wait a minute, things will change as they do in Melbourne. On to this week's episode. I know that last week I said that coming up next was Reese Muldoon. Unfortunately, due to a minor technical issue, um, that interview will be released in a few weeks' time. But I am a little bit beside myself about the fact that I got to sit down with, uh, with this man not long ago and get his thoughts on uh, the first time he entertained people, uh, the meaning of life for him, and what makes him silly. This is the man behind great shows such as Wilfred, Lowdown, and uh, most recently the Agony series. He's a man who has paved the way for people like me to do and to strive for what we want to do. Sitting with me, having a chin wag, having a yarn, this week, Adam Zwar, and I can't thank him enough for taking the time. So please, without further rambling, because I haven't said that word for a little while, here's my ramble with Adam. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in many ways it's informed everything I've done. Journalism. It's mm. been really, it's been really good. Um, I hated it at the time, and I, I, I resented having to, because my parents are journalists, and I thought I was just going into the family business, you know. Yeah, right. Um, so I resented it at the time very much, and um, and only found out later that how important it actually was, you know. Mm. And it would go on to inform everything I've done, and I'd probably be broken and living on the street without it. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it's been good. And you got to make lowdown out of that. Yeah, lowdown is uh, look. I I think so. I did journalism, and then went to acting school after journalism because I did journalism to appease my father, my father's wishes that I get something under my belt, and then I, I did acting school after that, and. Um, couldn't get any work as an actor so I went into journalism and then suddenly they combined together because I was doing freelance journalism which was able to pay for my acting habit for a while before that started paying for itself and the 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 discipline of writing and writing to deadline helped me uh, write scripts write you know short films and and help with the storytelling it also provided a, for, you know the budget for those short films and um and then you know so i would go off and then i wrote wilfred and then and then low down obviously that's all about my you know amanda brocci is the uh co-creator of that and she and i worked together to bring out my my journalism experiences i guess and then um and then agony is pretty much an exercise in journalism mm i did um it was i was quite taken by how with agony your your mo is almost is quite similar i think to what my intention with this podcast was which is to 
you know, sit down with people from the entertainment industry, people that you've admired or people that you know to kind of get a flavor of what makes them tick and what, what's mm. given them the drive to kind of pursue. I suppose you kind of took it in a, uh, a kind of a romantic or love mm. kind of angle and from that point of view. But yeah, I mean, how... Um, what 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 is it about this thing that's kind of driven you to this point mm. here um with agony itself or just generally just in general um i i'm still trying to work that out <laughs> uh i think that um look you know i i thought i was a journalist and i you know and i had a lot in common with journalists and then I thought I was an actor, and I had a lot in common with acting, but not not a hundred percent with actors, but not a hundred percent. This, I'm not the same as they are. Mm. And then I went into comedy, and yeah, probably have more in common with comedians than I do with actors. Um, so it's been a it's been a kind of a long search for me to find out, you know, what club I'm meant to be part of. Mm. Producers, I seem to seem to have even more in common with, you know. So, and that I've only discovered in the, in the last five years since I've had this company and Hawaii Films, and um, and so I think I'm I'm interested in the whole journey from the from the conception to actually handing it in. Um, I'm interested in in every facet every, every facet to try and make sure the product is of a standard, and. Um, and yeah so that that's obviously producing and from from this from you know but my hobby i would say is is people and and trying to work out what's on what goes on in their minds and what makes them tick and and Mm. uh and and interviewing them i find you know is extraordinary because you you know especially the ones who don't have a firewall I think that's fantastic. I think because I've got, you know, I think because of my middle class Protestant upbringing that I don't have, I I, I do have a firewall. Mm. You don't really meet people, you know, that middle class white Anglo-Irish C of E, they don't blab about their situation. Yeah. You just don't air your dirty laundry. And so me meeting people who do and interviewing people who do air their dirty laundry, I find that fascinating. Mm. What's, uh, I feel like you're thinking of a specific person there. Oh, well, I, just the other day, I, I've got a podcast and I uh, interviewed Greg Fleet, Lawrence Mooney, Yumi Steins, um, Kate Lanebrook. Those people who just just put it out there. And yeah. It's great. They, they say things that people dare not think. Mm. What's that? Yeah, and um, so I find that I find that interesting from my background perspective. You know, from my perspective, that's mm. really interesting. Because I guess when you're walking into a situation as a journalist, people immediately have yeah a front on. But that's the thing. So I was really lucky that I had this kind of. I went from journalism into acting, and so then became known as an actor and a writer. And so by the time it came for agony, they weren't seeing me as a journalist. I wasn't mm. Emma Alberici sitting in front of them. I was one of them. Yeah, yeah. And so it's cool, you know, if it was Lee Sales or, or Tony Jones or, what, you know, someone like that, they, 
there would have been a there would have been a definite kind of barrier mm. but because being an actor and uh, because I was in show business I was okay yeah right having said that I, I had to make sure I earned that I didn't you know I, I couldn't hang anyone out to dry and with my with Amanda Brocci and Nicole Minchin uh, my producing partners we made 100% sure that everyone was represented in the right way and if there was someone who was who said something a little bit that we thought we they may have regretted when it actually screened we got them in and had got them to have a look at the cut mm. and uh sometimes it was it went through it said yeah it's fine other times um they said oh do you mind taking that out mm. yeah. how important do you think it is to have that kind of level of integrity in all the work that you do Look, if you're writing for the Herald Sun, you, you, you don't have enough time to do that. Yeah, right. You're doing six stories a day and, and you actually have to. It's, a, it's an assembly line. Um, but if you're doing something like this, you're dealing with people's careers and they've been very generous to you for not a lot of money. Um, so you need to look after them, mm. I think. Mm. I'd like to, uh, to, to backtrack a little bit, if sure. I may. Um, people who listen to this regularly will know that this is basically a big tangent and I'm just kind of hooking in at places where I find them. Um, One thing that you talked about just before was about uh, both of your parents being writers Mm. working in, were they both both journalists? Uh, Yeah, yeah. So dad was a journalist who went on, became an author and he wrote about 20 nonfiction books and mum worked for House and Garden magazine and Mm. Gourmet Traveller. For about 20 years 25 years mm. um was that was was writing something that was encouraged for you growing up yeah look it's i think you know you see it all the time with kids who are second generation something mm. i don't know if you are you your your parents involved in this industry no no okay so you're breaking new ground mm. and it, that is actually harder yeah um, if you look at people who come from whose parents are actors, they generally n- know what to do. Mm. And there's an established kind of network as well. Established network, but also they do imbue. They are imbued with not just probably talent, but they are imbued with what's going on, what it, what is required mm. to Process. be to be an actor. Yeah. And the same was with me for being a journalist. I, there was no mystery about it. I knew how to write a news story at the age of 14. Right. You know, intro, linking part, open quotes, I was there. You know, there's no, no drama about it. I could do it in my sleep. Um, I could go back to, you know, newspapers don't exist anymore, but I could go back and work in journalism, no, no problems. Mm. So, yeah, you are, you are hooked in straight away to that world and also they had a lot of interesting people mum was a great cook so we always had a lot of interesting people coming around for dinner we lived in Cairns in far north Queensland and and um there was Dion Shalento she was a famous actress who was married to Sean Connery she'd be over at dinner and there'd be Tony Schaefer her husband who was who wrote this play called Sleuth which went on to be a, a, a movie starring Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier I think um and uh you, you know there was always writers and entertainers come you know coming through our house and chefs and so there was that creative there was always that creative stimulation and um i i so that was 
you know, that was uh, present always in me. So I always was going to go into this, into this life mm. or, or this career. And, uh, and, you know, I, yeah, I hope, uh, I hope I fulfilled those expectations that I had as a kid, you know, mm. I hope that's so, you know, I hope it's, I hope I've kind of done justice to the things that my parents taught me and, and, uh, and yeah. What were the sort of, uh, what were, I guess, for me growing up was the dream, a lot of the dream was about acting and entertaining and performing in front of people and getting that kind of feedback, you know, when you'd make your, your entire family laugh or you'd go and stage in a school play and you'd have a couple of hundred people kind of uh, engrossed in what you were doing. What was the kind of the dream for you when you were growing up that you're kind of reflecting on? To be an actor, you know, that, but in that kind of, that British tradition really, you know, like Anthony Hopkins and Richard Burden and Kenneth, Kenneth Branner and um, that, those were the guys I grew up reading. I re- grew up reading their biographies, mm. you know, after I decided that I wasn't going to play cricket for Australia. Um, <laughs> so I was going to become a serious actor. But you're always growing and evolving and... Um, and I learned quickly, as I said, that acting wasn't enough for me. Mm. And I, what satisfied my, you know, my the fellow students when I was at drama school did not satisfy me. I needed mm. to write. So I would write monologues for people. I would kind of, you know, I was inter- interested in the whole kind of uh, putting on a show mm. from start to finish. Um, but... Uh, you, you go where the work is, and you know. I and and acting is a very Moorish profession. You, if you, if it's good, it's the best thing in the world. If it's bad, which most of the time it is, it's <laughs> it's bleak, and you're not in control at all, and you're just sitting around. Um. So you know, I just, I I still harbour this dream in my twenties to be an actor. So you know, I, I that's why I made these short films. I thought if I myself in these short films people will see me and you know I'll, I'll have an acting career but what ended up happening was I ended up having a career as a producer mm. and a and a filmmaker um and a writer I uh, so which ultimately is more fulfilling mm. for me it's funny I was quite uh, I was more nervous than normal coming over here to do this podcast with you today because I feel, of all the people that I've spoken to on this podcast, I feel probably the most aligned with your ethos as a creative person. Because I also went to I went to drama school and became a little bit disenchanted. If where you did like, you, where it. did you go to drama school? I went to Monash. Oh yeah, um, to do the performing arts degree there. Yep. And after a year of that, I became a bit sort of yeah disenfranchised. I tried to get into uh, drama at Deakin. Yep. And I didn't get in where I had gotten in the previous year, but chosen Monash, probably uh, for the prestige or something. Right. So I decided to go and do uh, film studies at the VCA. I did a, a year of foundations there. And the theory for me at the time was that I wanted to learn how to create work for myself, mm. which I think is yeah. basically what you're saying, except not quite as articulate. I was, you know, mm. the simple act of acting mm. wasn't enough for me. 
or wasn't satisfying enough for me. And then out of that, I got into um, Swinburne and did the Bachelor of Film and TV just around the corner. Yep. And uh, yeah, as I, you know, I've, I've kind of dipped in and out of acting. I've gone back to study that. I've studied that abroad, but I keep coming back to filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be what inspires me the most is creating uh, a project from inception to completion mm. i think i think people who actually the actors who actually end up doing that um find it difficult to just go back and be a be a just a meat and potatoes actor mm. um you'll find that they're involved they you know they will become a producer or, or um they will be very involved in the script at script level and going through it. once they kind of have that once they've seen the light mm. it's very difficult to just go back mm. because you do <clears throat> there is a lot more control uh, yeah. yes and control is addictive well you know the thing is you, uh, that's right and uh, you, you see it all the time people go what a great actor Robert De Niro is mm. and he is but a bad director can make Robert De Niro look like shit mm. So Robert De Niro probably doesn't want that to happen anymore. So you know he takes more control. Mm. He gets maybe he he only does movies where he knows the directors are good or whatever. I'm not I'm not second guessing his career, but that's that's why you'd want to take more control mm. because you're out there. You're just a puppet to be manipulated. If you're an actor, mm. uh, you, the control you have is minimal, and so um, why would you want to go back to that life? After you've seen, after you've kind of been in control, mm. well, for the money is a simple. Is a simple <laughs> <answer>. <laughs> money is good. I hope to have someone. Yeah, that's right. Um, as oh, what was I? I was reading an interview with you where you talked about how being a producer has given you the luxury of being able to say no to stuff that you don't want to do, which is what I think you were saying mm. before. And I'm sure if you kind of reflect on the earlier parts of your career where you were um, being an actor and you were doing... Anything. Anything and, and guest roles and commercials and, mm. and whatnot. Um, I'm going back to that, by the way. You're going back to it now? Yeah, because I've got a mortgage. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I'll do anything. Uh, my agent is uh, Aaron Michael Management. So any casting <laughs> agents that are listening? That's it. Um, how how sort of important is it do you think for creatives and for artists to empower themselves to be multifaceted to be able to really do the work that they want to do well in America they call it a hyphenate so there's a, so there's no shame in doing a whole lot of things um, in Australia it's is not even a hyphen it is absolutely necessary mm. um I don't know many actors who are making a decent living by just being an actor. Because mm. what happens is with the wage scales is that if you, you are the star of a network TV show, you're earning the equivalent of a middle manager. But the thing is that that job at the most goes for 20 weeks. Mm. And then what do you, so the next 20 weeks, you may be unemployed. Um, so you've gone from 
middle management to nothing. So you just need, it doesn't matter if you're whoever, I'm not going to put names out there, <laughs> but it doesn't matter who, whoever you are, you've got to have something else cooking. Um, some people invest, some people uh, do voiceovers, um, some people drive Uber. Mm. It's just it's just what you have to do. Mm. And uh, yeah, um, so you, and other people write. Um, a lot of actors out there write and I I would encourage them to do a writing course I think they just think because they've read a lot of scripts that they can write it's bullshit mm. and they need to actually uh, do the hard yards like they did with acting because it's another profession mm. and a craft it's a craft and just because you've got something in your heart that you want to say doesn't mean you've got an effective process in which to say it mm. so you you need to you need to actually do the hard yards when it comes to that. I mean, they've all got scripts, but go to RMIT and do the bloody script writing course or something mm. like that because it's um yeah it's important because you you could tell when an actor's written something. Mm. It's great on character and it's got all this kind of idiosyncratic character stuff in it, but it doesn't have story mm. and um, structure and structure. So yeah. Get on to that, people. Mm. That was a, a big sort of turning point for me in my writing was, I mean, you go to film school and unlearn that. Yeah, yeah. Write, that, you know, Joseph right. Campbell and Save the Cat and yeah, yeah. all that stuff. But I was... McKay was, Field, get on to it. <laughs> um, but it wasn't really until I started collaborating with someone who actually knew how to structure scripts really well that i went oh fuck i've got no idea how to do this oh mate it's the thing and you know in australia it, i mean uh, the what even you, you can get shows up in australia with scripts that have a great idea that aren't very well executed just wouldn't pass muster in the states and you if you want to if you're a writer and you want to make sure you're you, sorry if you're a writer and you want to write stuff for america get online Download old episodes of Cheers and Friends, and I'm talking about the half hour space here. Mm. Um, Seinfeld, go on to Drew Scriptorama, get all those old PDFs, have a look at it, have a look at how breezy their big print is, and how structured, uh, how structured their, their, their stories are. Um, and copy that, get it in your head, copy mm. it. That's what I've had to do. And it, it, it's, you know, I read stuff from the US all the time and I just am, I marvel even when even when the show's shit how good the scripts are. Mm. Um actors kind of look at things scripts and go oh, that's shit but no it's actually really professional. Mm. And if you want to be in that market you need to learn how to do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um So on that note uh seems like a good segue into a half hour comedy that was over in the states that you had a Small hand in yeah. called Wilfred. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you, you're navigating kind of this career as an actor and you're putting, you know, you're always putting aside money to go into your creative projects mm. and your creative process. And at some point you create this short film for this um, concept that you have called Wilfred. How did that, what was the kind of inception of that idea and that process? Well, I'd made a bunch of short films that, 
like I didn't go to film school. Um, if I did go to film school, I probably would have gone into directing. Mm. But I didn't know any directors at this time, so I had to direct. So I wrote them and and acted in them and produced them. And this is money, like you're taking this money out of your own yeah, pocket yeah. to put into these shows. So I spent about four or five grand each time I, I made a, a short film. And um, and they were really bad. And <laughs> you, you just got to kind of... and But they got better every time. And I... Mm. Um, I knew where my weaknesses were, so I kind of worked around them. Um, my weaknesses were in cinema. I was kind of strong on stories, strong on mm. comedy, strong in getting decent performances, but I made it, I, I just made it look like shit. Mm. Every short film was shit. And then I met uh, a Tony Rogers on an ad, and his strength was art direction. Mm. He was an art director uh, in the advertising sense, which is a bit different to the film and TV sense. Art directors in film and TV pretty much just look look after the look of the set. You know what's, you know what props are hap- what props <laughs> the actors are using and where they're sitting and things like that. Mm. Whereas an art director in the advertising sense is all concept and look. Um, and yeah, so I met him and and so I thought, okay, this is this is what we do i you know that's i want to fill in that gap mm. and um and so in a, in a way uh, you know we collaborated together and, and jason gann of course who, who co-wrote it uh wilfred with me and um this is after i've made about five or six shorts and then i get on to tony and and we do that to we do the short film of Wilfred together. I'm in the edit suite the whole time, you know. So it is a collaboration, you know. He's the director, but um, I was the producer and very much a creative producer. And uh, so the, the film does well, and it's the first thing really in my life that's that's well, in the last uh, I, I think it was the first thing in my life that's actually gone. Well, I mean, there were journalism things that, are, that you know that I did well, but I didn't really count that because I I felt in a way that um, it was a bit, you know, I just didn't love it. Mm. And so this is the first thing that's ever done well, and I, you know, it meant a lot to me. And suddenly the industry did open up to me. But it was in Tropfest, wasn't it? It was in Tropfest, and it won Best Comedy, and and it was the, and Best Actor, and uh, the Audience Award, and. You know, there were a lot of. I didn't have the keys to the executive bathroom right at that moment, but mm. it was just like I remember being able to breathe easily. I wasn't just scratching, desperately clawing my way through the through the kind of jungle of Australian film and television. I, I I'd made something, mm. and um, and then I got involved with a guy called Chris Merkshire who was writing. I had a show up with the ABC, a zombie comedy in 2002. Um, never got up, should have done it, ABC. It was really good. Um, now everyone's on the zombie thing. What are you thinking? Um, the pioneers. He was a bloody pioneer, that guy. I don't know why it didn't happen. Anyway, um, so but he taught me a lot about um, screenwriting because I had that journalism background and everything. I knew how to structure things, but I... I, I didn't have that polish of a screenwriting, so I really did kind of sit at his feet. And he also taught me how to write a Bible uh, mm. for TV, a TV Bible. That 
four or five months I spent with him was crucial. And then I thought, okay, let's do this with Wilfred. And I said it to Jason, let's do it. Let, 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 let's make Wilfred into a show. And we'd, we'd um, uh, combined all this money that we'd, uh, money in kind that we'd won for, for the short film. And we made a pilot, sent it out, no reaction from anyone. But Comedy Channel did say, let's, let's see some scripts. Can the boys just write some scripts on spec? So we wrote all eight episodes. Mm. And just as we're finishing the eighth episode, Comedy Channel said, by the way, we no longer have any money. <laughs> but we had eight episodes and a pilot, so we sent it off to SBS, who had originally said no, because they didn't think there was anything, that they couldn't see a series in this. Mm. And then suddenly they saw the eight scripts and they went, yes. And so that was a big thing for us. And we So that was 2006 and... Um, so that was four years five, five years so in the opening in the first episode of Wilfred you see a bit from the short film which shot in November 2001 you see something that was you see a bunch of scenes that were shot from the pilot in 2003 mm. probably June or July 2003 and then there was a, a, some, a couple of extra scenes that were shot in 2006 so that first episode is five years and you can see us aging <laughs> dramatically during that time you know Jason's voice um, in the in the short film is yeah it's it's up here yeah what are you doing Adam you know it's up there. and by that time he's smoking a lot more cigarettes and mm. Wilfred was down here like that well, you have to be a method actor that's it yeah a lot of bongs and so turn into a dog. <laughs> exactly and you I was I think I put on about five kilos um, yeah so uh, that was the, that was the inception then ratings were not very good um. And I thought it was all over. And uh, then the DVD, because in those days it was all DVD, and then the DVD sales just just were ridiculous. Mm. It was SBS's biggest selling DVD. And, uh, you know, they sold, ended up selling about 180,000. Wow. And uh, so it was on the strength of that that we got a second series up. And, and then as we're making the second series, that's when the phone calls from America started happening. And, so they yeah. were calling you. Yeah, yeah. Look... There were, it wasn't that easy. It wasn't that cut and dried. There were a few kind of, oh, have you seen this? Creating awareness. Yeah, mm. yeah. And that you, Joe Connor, who's the executive producer, he, he often jokes that he could buy a ship <laughs> and have a party for all the people that said that they were instrumental in getting Wilfred to the US. Right. So, yeah, it's like, you know, it was like one of those things where everyone, everyone was there, everyone was involved. Mm-hmm. What was the process of, of uh, I guess, selling it to an American network once that, once you'd kind of come to that and it had created the awareness? So I see. So then you get it. It really is just a matter. I, I wasn't involved in that. I wasn't there for that meeting where, the, where they sold it. But um, so I can't really. It, I can't really add much to it except to say that it was pretty quick. Mm. Um, I remember just being lost in the in the uh, contracts and the contracts with America are always full on and quite quite tedious. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so once ICM were involved, um, it went straight to FX. They didn't even go to a studio. Mm. And because uh, normally the process is producer, studio, 
network. Um, so that happened, um, and I, my involvement, I asked if I, you know, because I was, it's like when you sell a format, it's like you've got a restaurant or something, and, mm. and someone says, we want to buy the restaurant. Um, sometimes they say you can still work here if you want. Um, and they want definitely wanted Jason because he was the signature dish, mm. um, that character and that actor. Uh, were, and they asked if I wanted to be involved as well. Um, and I said, no, I was doing low down here and I had agony in the pipeline. So I, was looked, I, felt, I felt pretty comfortable in letting it go. Um, so I was only interested really from then on in, in just making sure that uh, I was going to get paid, mm. <laughs> and which, was, which all worked out. And then we did lowdown, and then that is in a similar situation right now. That's a format that's with, with, a, with a company in the studio. So we're working on getting that out there as well. Over in the States. Yeah, wow, yeah. that's really exciting. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's uh, when you're involved in the back and forth, it's quite nerve-wracking because mm. you think at any stage it could all fall over. But yeah, yeah it's, it's exciting. Do you, do you see, because, uh, you, you know, you, like you said, you kind of walked away from Wilfred in a sense. Yeah. Um, you left your signature on there, but, you know, you're, you detached any sort of creative involvement. When you were kind of making that decision, was there something going on where it's like, this is this kind of gives me now credibility to make more work that I want to make. Yeah, yeah, I it definitely did. It definitely was a um, a relief to me to to have uh, that that tick of approval, um, and it was hard to let go. But I just had you, you can't do everything, so mm. I, I had to I had to do that um, and. Um. Uh, I, I wasn't. I never really watched this. The USC. I watched a few episodes, and I thought, you know, I just wanted to make sure. You know, <laughs> everything's it. right. Jace was great. You know, he 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 was able to do a lot more. He was able to be a lot more creative with his acting than he would have been in in Australia. Mm. And um, I, I I kind of was a little confused as to why they needed to explain everything, but you know, you know, let them knock themselves out. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Mm. And if it, if I didn't have anything else going, maybe I'd, I'd be more kind of obsessive, but, um, I had other stuff to worry about. Mm. So you go into, from Wilfred into lowdown mm. and lowdown is quite heavily influenced by your own experiences. Yeah. Um, how kind of Woody Allen do you go with your <laughs> writing? Um, well, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because Amanda Brocci is the co-creator is also my wife. So she was able to make, uh, she was able to Woody Allen the shit out of, uh, <laughs> my character, <laughs> uh, because she knows probably, uh, you know, just how neurotic I am. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, it was, um, it was interesting what we did with Lowdown. I mean, it was, uh, we, it was, um, he was an interesting character because he, he, 
wasn't a hundred percent a full guy, which most Australian comedies are. The male protagonist has to be a struggling guy down on his luck. Mm. Um, so, I uh, basically this guy was arrogant enough to do some uh, to throw his weight around. But the funny thing was, the karma bus would hit him straight away, mm. and. Uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that character and I was able to work with Paul Denny who who played uh, Alex's sidekick, Alex's photographer and um, Paul and I went to uni together. We, Paul, Jason Gann and I went to uni together. So we've all known each other for since 1990 and uh, I think that knowledge, that friendship mm. does actually play well on screen. Mm. And um, yeah, so I, that was fun to to to, to do that. And uh, yeah, it, I mean, Amanda and I looked at, looked at Lowdown the other day because we, we were trying to work out what episodes to to <laughs> to send out there for for one thing or another. Yeah. And um, and we're just going, wow, I can't believe we got all over that. It was some, you know, <laughs> it was. Uh, I, we did do some a little bit of absurdist stuff there as well. Mm, there's some very ballsy stuff in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, you could, I don't know if you could get away with it now on ABC One. Mm. Anyway, um, how how important is it to to use yourself as a starting point for any kind of creativity or artistry? Well, in America, they would say it's 100 percent important. That's what you have to do when you go and pitch stuff. Is say the reason. This is, this is my story, mm. you know. It's they love that. If you say this is my story, and if it's not your story, tell them it is. <laughs> um, they don't know any different. No, because they can't argue with that. Mm. Yeah, okay. I'm going to make a story about a, a witness protection. The family's gone into witness protection. Have you ever been in witness protection? No. But if you say, I had a mate who uh, his dad, you know. Um, um, robbery got done for armed robbery. Uh, did a deal with the cops and went into witness protection. Then they, then they're gripped. They're interested. Mm. <laughs> interested. So yeah, you need to make it. You need to tell them that it's your story. Um, but there's a reason for that, and the reason is it's authentic and it's it, 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 there's that truth just bounces off the screen. Mm. Um, and it's easier for you to write. You know, I, I really, you know, I, I know it's controversial, but I always say, you know, I I, I follow the creative write what you know mm. i think you can only write what you know really yeah but then it's interesting if you if you look at the you know shakespeare i know there's a doubt over whether he actually wrote everything but he writes intricately about it italy mm. and he never went mm. um but then again he would have researched the shit out of it so it's so then you know it don't you but is also not necessarily writing about Italy per se. Italy is like the vehicle, yeah, yeah, for a theme. But you know, would you feel comfortable writing about? I don't know, setting something in Bahrain. I don't know, somewhere that you've never really been. No. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to imagine. You know, you'd rather set it in your own backyard because yeah. then you've got, you know, the, the territory. Mm. I don't know. It's, it's a really. It's a really interesting thing. I, but for me, and then again, of course, you know, you <laughs> look at George Lucas and, you know, yep. none of them have actually gone into space. <laughs> but, 
But me, I've just got to write what I know because I'm a bit, I'm a bit more earthy, I think, with, with what I write. Mm. And you mentioned that Amanda Brocci, who directed uh, Lowdown, was your wife. Did yeah. Did you meet her working on... I met her at the Sakilda Film Festival years before. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I interviewed her as a journalist when she made a film called Break and Enter, which ended up winning an AFI award. And, and then a few years later, I, actually, I did that over the phone. And then a few years later, I actually met her and she'd seen Wilfred and... And um, and so then you know started going out and everything, and we always threatened to work with each other. And then one day it <laughs> happened, <laughs> and then we formed a company with Nicole Minchin, and and um, and so it was, it's less about kind of working together creatively and more about just running the company mm. and having different titles come in and, and stuff like that. Mm. What was the uh, what was your first date with her? Uh, Spider Man. Spider Man. Yeah, yeah, and Tony then Maguire. What was that? Toby Maguire. Toby Maguire, yeah. So then we went and saw, uh, it was a series of dates, and then we went and saw Mad Max 1 and 2 at the Astor, and then and then a Woody Allen, uh, I think it might have been um, Sleepers, and then Hannah and Her Sisters. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a bunch of films. Yeah. And, um, and how long were you dating before you popped the question? Oh, about a year, year and a half. Yeah. Year and a half got married, but yeah. Yeah, so it must have been about a year. I don't know, 15 months. Mm. Yeah. Something I'm really curious about, which comes up frequently on these podcasts, is the idea of uh, relationships and sustaining relationships in the entertainment industry seems mm. to be a lot more difficult than in, say, accounting yeah. um, or merchant banking. Um, how have you sort of found... Was Amanda the first person that you dated sort of in the industry no they've all been in the industry it's really hard to to date civilians mm. i've tried that I, it's just they just don't get it um now you might say so some people might listen to that and go what what's there to get well it's it's um the hours it's um the dreaming that the, the dreams that get shattered mm. regularly. Um, it's the lack of lack of certainty. Um, it's the money that is just sometimes great and sometimes terrible. Um, and I think there's something about our personalities that drives to be in show business. I mean, there's a, some people have theories that you're given not much. You won't give much attention as a child, so you're seeking it. When you're an adult, some say that you are given so much attention that you want to just keep going. Uh, you just want to keep the attention going through your adult life. Mm. Uh, you know, some of us have, a, some of us might have a hole that we need to fill. I don't know. It, you, you go into this world because you're a bit of a, a dreamer and a, and uh, and uh, yeah, so. It, it then starts to get a bit nebulous, doesn't it? <laughs> you just you're a little bit more of a kind of a fantasist than maybe someone who is a chartered accountant is, mm. and so you probably need to be with people who who are also fantasists. Mm. Do you and Amanda have? Well, obviously you do because you've built a very small empire for yourself, DIY <laughs> films, which is no small task. Um, but do you guys have kind of shared dreams that you kind of fantasize about together that create 
a really nice intimate space between you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, yeah, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're both, we are both dreamers. That, that's the, you know, um, and it's, it's kind of, you know, most people would say, oh, that's ridiculous. But then sometimes it ends up happening. You know, you end up selling something to America or, and you end, you end up going over there and, you know, you, you're kind of living this silly lifestyle for a while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you have to dream it to, for it to happen. It just doesn't land in your lap. So, yeah, so that, that's, we both kind of bought, bought into that. Mm. What does a silly lifestyle? Oh, well, it could be, you know, you're just going to, you're staying at the Four Seasons and, you you know, you've been put up there and you're going to meetings and, you, you, um, uh, you know, you could be... <laughs> Everything's quite surreal over there in the sense that what we hold dear... Sorry, what the people that we hold up as icons are just people over there. So, you know... Um, it's an interesting world, and um, I'll think about. I'll, I'll remember a whole bunch of things I, I should have said to you after this is finished. But I, I can't. I can't actually paint the picture of what, what it's like. But you, mm. you, you're living a life that you had to dream it to to make it happen. Now I'm not saying in any way that we've arrived in in any that we've got anywhere close to our dreams. But occasionally you get a taste of it, and, mm. and that's great. It keeps you going. Well, the dream is also ever-evolving and it's kind of that idea of you might as well shoot for the moon because at least you'll land amongst the stars. That's right. That's right. I just saw something really interesting the other day. It was Ross Lyon, the Fremantle coach, and the question was, are you confident? And he says, no, I don't need to be. Action creates confidence. Mm. So this afternoon there's going to be action, you know, and, um, well, we're going to act. And I think you need to just push. You just need to kind of every day make sure you're doing something to further to to, to get close to that dream. Mm. Um, and you're going to go through times of uh, where you doubt yourself, and there's no money coming in, and everyone's against you. But just look, just keep going, and that's why what you're doing is great. You know, you're making your own show, and you're doing a podcast and everything like that. That is so important. And in ten years' time, mm. you, you'll set yourself up for the only game in town, really, because old media is, you know, it's having its last hurrah. It's the last days of Rome, mm. <laughs> so yeah, um, and it's uh, a lot of people are going to be kind of out of out of jobs in five years mm. because they didn't get on board mm. and and you can do it yeah you, you got up you you make this happen yourself no one no one's helping you you know you're doing it yourself so um that's uh i i feel that you know on a spiritual level that does send the right message out to the gods that you're serious about what you're doing and and uh, i think you'll be rewarded thanks man it means mm. a lot yeah, I think that's a, yeah. It's important for everyone. That was taught to me by a guy called Peter Docker many years ago, who's an actor, and and he said, you know, he always does. He always did profit share and co-op theatre and everything. And he said, I said, what are you doing it all, Doc? What are you doing it all? And he he said, because it sends the the message out to the gods that I'm serious about what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And he did get rewarded. And uh, and you just grow and evolve it. At, 
at the same time and you don't even know it but it's happening and uh and you're ready for the that you're ready for when someone says you know alistair here's a lot of money (laughs) make this for me don't fuck it up (laughs) yeah yeah don't fuck it up um do you have a how, how important is uh i guess having faith in that's kind of like a karmic attitude that you're describing there about you know putting it out there it's not necessarily about getting it back but it's that kind of karmic cycle that yeah. if you're serious about something you just do it and you put it out into the world don't talk about it don't go i mean every um, the thing is uh, every pub in Australia has someone with a great idea. Mm. Probably 10 people with great ideas. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Mm. And there's, there's, you either need to know how, you, they'll never get the idea up because they don't know how to execute it. But some of them will even never even learn how to execute it because it will never even be bothered to find out because they too can't be buggered. Mm. And... Um, so that's how you differentiate yourself. We're all kind of talented, but you just need to be able to work effectively and smartly and um, and, and and make it happen because, uh, yeah, it's not going to happen, especially in Australia, no, no one's going to say to you, if you're sitting on your ass, no one's going to say to you, come on, Alistair, yeah. I, I really think I'm going to provide you with X amount of money to actually do a podcast mm. or make a film just doesn't happen you've got to go out there and you've got to hit the pavement and make it happen and it's an ugly business it's a street fight and the, a lot of people who make it in this country are, are, are self-made mm. um like I, I look at i look at people who make their own stuff um whether you like them or not uh they're fighters um like i put brendan cowell in that category i just think that um you know he's he's really muscled up and put one foot in front of the other all the time um and uh yeah i i think that's the that's the only the only way to do it mm. some- uh, unless you're just embraced by the industry some people are just it's beautiful they go from film school and they're suddenly embraced by yeah. the industry okay that that happens great congratulations yeah. but it's not going to happen to everybody no and I'm sure there's something more at play there as well than just <laughs> being welcomed with open arms. Yeah. I mean, I had a, a, a good friend of mine, um, Liam McIntyre, who I had on this podcast. He was um, struggling as an actor for years and years. He was, wor- he was essentially working two full-time jobs. One was during the day and the other was by night being an actor, spent all his weekends being an actor. Couldn't really get a sniff of anything here and then got the gig of um, playing Spartacus in the Stars TV series of Spartacus. Wow. Um, And it appeared from the outside as though it was just this overnight success. Yeah. But really the reality of that was years and years of preparing and training and and working with faith and and trust that if you put it out into the world that it was going to come back to him. Um, And now he's... Uh, when I did the podcast with him, he'd just done a film with John Cleese and Deborah Messing. Wow! Um, and uh, he's 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 very much living his dream. But was he living in Melbourne when he was? He was living, Yeah, he was living in Melbourne uh, back then, and now he lives. He's based over in LA, but yeah. he kind of works all over the world. 
That's great. That's great. And so was he doing plays and and stuff yeah. as he was do- as he was doing his two jobs? Yeah, and he kind of, um, you know, he'd get a, the the odd guest spot here or there on um, on Rush or Neighbours oh, yeah. or something. Yeah, but it was his sensibility was not what was in vogue in the Australian industry, if yep. you like. Yeah. Um, so did he come on as after the first guy died? Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, it was before he passed away, but um, after he realised that he could no longer do the role anymore. Holy fuck. Mm. What a hard situation for him to actually go into. What a difficult situation mm. to go into. Um, yeah, because especially... Uh, that work ethics require because I know how much those guys train on Spartacus, you know, physically. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's... Um, so, if you're going to work that hard, you need to... If you're going to be like him, you need to love it mm. and have an un, uh, unbending faith um, and just do all the right things. Mm. Having said that, though, acting is a lottery. You probably got more of a chance, you know, to do what you're doing and just make it happen yourself, you know, mm. because you're not really relying on anyone else. You're, you're actually relying on yourself. Um, eventually, you will rely on other people, but um, what's exciting now is is people are uh, are getting to make uh, make their own thing and put it online un, unencumbered mm. by. Uh, Intervention. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was one of the uh, inspirations of the podcast was it's kind of the Wild West at the moment. You can yeah. fling your own gun and have your own voice and people will listen or they won't. <laughs> That's right. And it's, uh, I tell you, when you do get a few clicks, it's very heartening. Mm, it certainly is. You're um, very proactive in your creativity and you have been kind of all the way through your career um, from my observation, anyway, is that what is that what life is all about for you? Creating? Yeah, it, it is. Um, it's a bit of an obsession and an and, a, and an addiction. Um, and uh, I'm always thinking about shows and and uh, I always want to be working on whatever I'm not working. Sorry, I always want to be working on something else mm. you know say i get a gig <laughs> and i go all right you know I, I, I wish i was just in a room all day just coming up with ideas you know i've got a friend called tony Ayres who works who owns matchbox or did own it before nbc universal bought it off him mm. but um so now he's got that the parent company of nbc universal he just sits in a room and thinks up ideas and then is kind of oversees them all like all, all these little children or, or a garden or whatever metaphor you like and um, yeah, uh, that's a that's a little bit of a kind of utopian universe where you just sit, sit around coming up with ideas because that's what you know, that's the that's the happy place for me. I think mm. is uh, is just coming up with stuff, mm. you know. And God, even the happier places like say you got a bunch of writers and you go, I'm thinking about an idea, you know, mm. set in a caravan park, uh, whatever, and they and then. You know, then the writers come up with the stuff and you go, yeah, yeah, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> and I'll take it. 10%. <laughs> and credit by credit. That'd yeah. be beautiful. That would be pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and some, some people, that does happen to some people. Mm, someone was telling me about in LA, 
what was it? Selling treatment, like just coming up with treatments uh, and selling them. That's that's a profession. I I've got mates who are, who are only seven hundred grand a year just on development deals. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, yeah. Scripts that never see the light. Never of day. see the light of day. But you know what? Um, that gets to them. Mm. And you're in the circle, and you're in the cycle, and you, and you. I, I think there'd be a, a spiritual emptiness if you're not actually seeing anything go, go on the screen. I reckon that would, that'd get to me after a while. Mm. Um, so, uh, but you know, that's good money. Mm. Jesus, it just depends, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yep. You've said something. You've mentioned the word spiritual a couple of times. Mm. Last uh, questions. Do you consider yourself to be a spiritual person? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I don't really have. Uh, I'm not really tied to any club. Um, I've kind of just <laughs> handpick the things. I, I cheat. Um, but yeah, I do. I do believe in all that stuff, and I, um, I have to believe in it uh, because I, 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 it gives. You, gives you um, a kind of creed to live by and, mm. and uh, a set of rules. and um, Yeah, so I, I think that uh, when, when you're doing, uh, if you're doing a whole lot of bad stuff or doing the whole, you know, the wrong thing or you're doing things for the wrong reasons, it just comes back to bite you mm. every time. Creatively speaking, you know, if, you, if someone came up tomorrow and told me um i don't know if i did neighbors i reckon something like that for, for, without a good reason without the fact that you know if i didn't if i had three kids i was trying to put through school and then i was doing neighbors i think i think that would be the right reason mm. but i don't have any kids so doing neighbors just for the sake of it i reckon i'll probably want to shoot myself pretty quickly <laughs> nothing against neighbors but that's just yeah. me yeah so i think you need to do things for the right reasons mm. and i guess that's the spiritual thing as well do you believe in like a divinity or like a sort of a higher power or a, a kind of intangible energy or something yeah i do but i haven't i don't have a big enough brain to actually work work <laughs> work it out what that might be mm. or what that actually looks like mm. um I'll leave that up to uh, Waleed Ali. <laughs> <laughs> um, something that you said actually about agony, which really kind of um, struck me, was when you were talking about showing um, the second season, which is... Uh, aunts? Agony aunts? Yeah, for, the, for, for those listening who aren't familiar with um, what agony is. Yeah, it was agony uncles. I started basically, um, I thought it'd be a good idea to get guys to talk about love and relationship, romance and relationships. Just that. It was based on a column I used to have in the uh, Sunday Herald Sun and um, thought, oh, well, Australian men never talk about those kinds of things. So how about we get 20 wellish known uh, um, Australian men to talk about love? And, of course, no one really wanted to do it, so I ended up getting my friends mm. who are well known to do it. And um, it, it, uh, the network immediately said, okay, we need it. 
uh, a female version and we'll run them together and so that was fantastic and we did the same with with the girls uh, so we ran those two series, Agony Uncles first, and everyone was outcrying, saying how misogynist it was and blah, blah, blah. And then you ran Agony Arts, which was bash men just as much, if not more, um, than the men bash women. Um, yeah, so, I, yeah, it really did. It was on at 9.30 at night, but the ratings were really good. It always outrate whatever its lead-in was. And, mm. and um, so it was half hour men and then women talking about love and romance from the start from the first episode would be about pick you know going out and meeting someone and then the next episode would be about dating and then third episode relationship fourth moving in fifth the breakup sixth getting back on the horse you know mm. and and so those series went well and they said what what else have you got and i thought oh, what about the agony of life and that was it was eight episodes and it charted you know as a child to an adult to getting old and and you know what your spirituality might or might not be what your spiritual belief is mm. and where do you think you're going to go when it's all over um and you know then i did manners and it just kept on going we did end up doing six seasons of it and a bunch of specials and uh yeah it it, it was um it it really you know, apart from the fact that I get very tired doing it because you you would shoot 60 hours of interviews for three hours of television. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of stuff you had to comb through. And it wasn't like I had assistants or anything. You know, I had an editor, but it was just me going mm. through that material. So the first few weeks, I'd just be like, this is a dream job. This is what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. By week three, I'm just shattered. Mm. By week 15, I've gone through like the pain barrier and out, you know, I am, it always put me in a really strange mental mm. place. When you break the back of it? Yeah, when it was done, I was kind of almost delirious. Um. I'm also doing, right now, I'm going through the format for America, and if it happens in America, you know, there's three people doing my job, mm. um, or four people, maybe. So it, it, it'd, be a different, it'd be a different setup. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, I, I can't emphasise enough, because I would work from 6, you know, from 6 a.m. till 2 a.m. pretty much, and... Uh, and everyone goes, oh, it's a simple show. It must be, you know, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I loved it. But sometimes even when you love something, the tiredness is an enemy. Mm. You've got to keep stepping up the challenge, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm ready to go. And then the, you forget pain. Humans forget pain. Mm. And then you're ready to go again. Mm. One of the things that I read in an, in an interview with you about the second season was when you showed it to your business partners, to Amanda and Nicole Minchin. Um, and right. Agony Arts, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah Agony Arts. And um, where in the first series, um, people had been quite raucous in laughter in response yeah. to what the men were saying, um, you found that Amanda and Nicole were actually quite teary and, and quite touched. They were silent. Because they were sitting behind me, so I didn't know what they what's going on. I just he heard no laughter. Mm. Oh fuck! This is a, <laughs> this is a disaster. 
And I turned and said, what do you think? They go, we love it. We love it. We love it more. Mm. But you weren't laughing. Doesn't matter. We're gripped. It was a grip. And, um, and that was the show that won all the awards. Uh, I just think... I just think, <laughs> and I've said this before, that, that when it comes to relationships, women have put a lot of lot more thought into it than men. Mm. Now, I mean, that's that could be a very controversial thing to say, but that was my experience. I don't think it's controversial. I think that women are far more emotionally complex yeah. and are far more in touch with what love really is all about than men yeah. are. Yeah, and what a relationship is all about. Mm. Um, having said that, I think that the gay guys on Agony Uncles were a little bit more... They had a bit more of a sense. <laughs> and not Scott Brennan, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but a few of the others did. Um, yeah, I I think Adam Elliott is quite in touch with um, with his, emo- his emotional side, but... Mm. He's a very special man. Uh, and as you are, Scotty. <laughs> I don't want to compare. But yeah, Scotty Brennan. He he he's um, he just. Uh, I was. It was fascinating to for heterosexual male for him just to say, yeah, this is what happens. You know, you're a gay guy. This is what happens, and you know, um, and uh, and he was so honest about everything and um, just. He was brutally honest about everything, and then just brutally honest about his heartbreak, and uh, more so than any of the heterosexual men were. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, and then the female, and then there was the, the gay men also bagging lesbians, <laughs> and then you went into and said, "Oh," and they all turn up with their, you know. Gay man it takes an eighteen months for us to, to to decide to move in together. Whereas female lesbians, they move in the next night. They turn up with their their cushions and their scented candles, and they're, <laughs> they're 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 moving. They've moved in together. So yeah, so maybe that's a little bit of a that encapsulates the difference between the the two. The women are they're emotionally ready to move in, mm. collaborate, uh, cohabitate. It's all there. Uh, whereas guys are just, ah, just arm's length for a little while. Yeah, keep it logical. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, but they, um, I think I also, I don't want to repeat myself, but they, so I have questions that I ask and the girls all answer the questions directly, whereas the guys fit their anecdotes to the questions. Right. So essentially, it was going to be a raw, that that was always going to be a raw experience. Mm. What was it about love and relationships that you were so fascinated by that you wanted to create this show? The first bit was I. Uh, the first impetus was the fact that I'd I'd grown up in Queensland in the eighties uh, and early nineties, and where men didn't or none of the men that I hung out with talked about uh, having any failure when it came to relationships. Mm. It was always success. Every sexual experience was a massive success. Every relationship was a massive success. And if they decided to terminate it, it was on their terms. You never got any sense that there was any kind of soul searching or heartache involved. Mm. And, uh, 
And whereas I'm going, well, that is a very different experience to what's going on with me. And then you become an adult and you realize that no, those guys are lying and that everyone goes through stuff. Um, and, uh, and I thought, well, okay, well, that, this is a show that I'm making for the young Adam or the young whoever to think, you're not alone. You know, it's a, the tumult is for everyone. Mm. And that's what was great, having someone like Brett Tucker, who looks, who actually was a centerfold model, who's now doing very well in the US as an actor. And he's, you know, the most handsome guy you'll ever meet. He plays Thor's brother and Thor and, you know. Um, it was great him talking about lucking out, you know, and, and, having, and having a really bad time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I felt that that was, for me, that encapsulated the reason for making Agony. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then I was off and running after that. That was the impetus. But after that, then you're starting to make a show. Mm. And then the girls... The, the the aunts actually define what agony aunts was all about. They they defined it. Mm. Their brutal honesty really set that show up and set that show up and running and really did brand agony as a format. Mm. Um, a couple of uh, standard questions that I haven't yet got to, um, but kind of reminded me there where you start where you were talking about um, younger Adam. Yeah. And what he might have wanted to see. And we did touch on it a little bit earlier on, but something that I'm fascinated by is, um, do you remember the first time that you entertained anyone or that you um, might have written something or uh, uh, acted in something that gave you that feedback to say, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life? Yeah, well, it was the, the uh, I did the Stedfords when I was a kid when I did the, did poems and I knew I was good at that. I knew I had an angle <laughs> with the entertainment. Um, Dad had a, a bunch of uh, LPs and they were Barry Humphreys, A Nice Night's Entertainment. It was Bob Newhart who who did who was a monologue comedian in the sixties and seventies. Was a legend, just great, mm. and also had his own sitcom. And then there was another guy called Shelley Berman, and Shelley Berman was bigger than everyone. But uh, NBC did a documentary on him, which was a, a kind of a fly on the wall documentary. Mm. And he threw a tantrum in the documentary at his stage manager right. for for doing something, and suddenly he was blacklisted, and disappeared from comedy altogether actually ended up being a university professor for many years and has only recently turned up on Curb Your Enthusiasm as Larry David's father right now Shelley Berman was was a legend and he had this monologue called the morning after the night before which is a, a guy wakes up after a big party and rings up his mate to find out what he did so it's a phone call conversation monologue which they didn't did a lot of in the 60s anyway I learned that off by heart as a 10 year old wow and um, my parents, I didn't really know what it, why it was funny because I didn't never had a hangover, <laughs> a hangover. Mm. but I did this monologue, pretty much learnt it beat for beat, mm. and did the voices and and everything. And so my dad used to get me to perform that at, at dinner parties for his friends, huh. mum and dad. 
and but that was the major push <laughs> and so um yeah i heard them laughing i didn't really know why they were laughing because i didn't really understand alcohol alcoholism and and that but yeah that was the taste for it mm. and uh yeah as i said then i'm i'm on to the onto the, the richard burden biography or whatever you mm. know and i'm um i just want to be an actor and and yeah and then you find out there's there's actually well that's the entry point isn't it just seeing the actor on the screen and then you find out there's a whole lot of other things that happen and that you might be uh that you might want to try mm. and then you end up doing you, you might be a director or a producer and, and then you're not doing what what i've done mm. unless you're just a brilliant actor and you're great looking and everything and then you can just be a, you have a very nice life yeah. as an actor <laughs> as a good looking human that's it you know it must be you know that's it i've got friends who are like that and it's an interesting it's an interesting life but they're not in control of it mm. so what's on the horizon for you um i've got to do it i'm about to i am doing now an episode of Dr. Blake's Murder Mysteries. I play a crook on that. Um, and uh, and then I'm... And hopefully get over to the States mm. by the end of the year. Awesome. Yeah. Touch wood. See yeah. how it goes. Cool. Thank you so much for uh, sitting and chatting with me. There is one more question yeah, that thanks, I'd like Alistair. to ask everyone. Yeah. Before we wrap up, uh, what makes you silly? Um, well, I am silly. I don't know what I think it's genetics. <laughs> um, I know, yeah, because I sometimes see my uncle just branch off into absurd. It's like he's talking, speaking in tongues, and I think, oh yeah, it comes from somewhere, doesn't it? <laughs> this kind of random, random thoughts, and that you're happy to, you're happy to articulate. I. Uh, yeah, I think I do have a, a slight sense of the absurd. I do go on flights of fancy, and that's probably a problem with my writing that I need to ground everything. <laughs> Just ground it because, you know, people will go on that flight of fancy with you if there's some truth to it. <laughs> but sometimes I'm, I'm not even, sometimes in the first instance, I'm not willing to even entertain the truth. I just want to go on the on the flight of fancy so that's that's what makes me silly i think are there any flights of fancy that you've been hooked into of late <laughs> um i tell you what you're doing yeah um yeah i've written something that's uh a bit crazy it's um it's a little bit based on my dad and uh who's who's uh um He's not well at the moment, and he's got a condition, a kind of Parkinson-style condition. And, um, yeah, so I've created a character a little bit like him, but uh, he, that character kind of goes and he moves in with his daughter and, and her boyfriend, and he's a strong kind of masculine Hemingway-type mm. person who is a little bit... who has an illness, but is a strong man, and the boyfriend... It's a soft cock. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, a hipster in a city, urbane kind of uh, wimp. Mm. And so um, the uh, the father's uh, goal is to get rid of the boyfriend. Right. 
that before he dies, he wants her, his daughter with someone decent. Mm. And so it's this kind of battle between the um, Hemingway and, I don't know, <laughs> the soft cock. <laughs> so, yeah, that is a bit of a, that, I've had some fun with that. Mm. So authenticity is the key to any flights of fancy. Yeah, just make sure there's some truth to it. Cool. What's your podcast called? 10 Questions with Adam Zwar. Cool. It's a very, uh, very simple title. Mm. <laughs> cool. But yeah, it's fun. I know why you do it. It's good fun. I know why you do it. It's yeah. Fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Good luck with it. Thanks, man. That's great, buddy. Well, many thanks to that man, Adam Zwar. And if you'd like to hear more from Adam, tune into his podcast, 10 Questions with Adam Zwar. It's a great insight into some of the country's greatest names. I've certainly enjoyed tuning in every week. And if you'd like to find Adam on the Twitters, you can at Adam Zwar. And don't forget, friends, you've still got another week to win a coming up next hockey jersey. All you have to do is like us on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash C-U-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Share your favorite interview, hashtag C-U-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and tag the Facebook page in the post. Uh, Moving on to uh, next week's guest. She has been around the entertainment industry for over 30 years. She's a graduate of NIDA, most well known for for the work that she did in uh, in the mid-90s in Spellbinder. Uh, most recently, she's appeared on stage in Strictly Ballroom and in the upcoming Molly Meldrum miniseries. Coming up next, Heather Mitchell. Thanks for tuning in, friends, and I'll see you next, whatever day you listen. Listen.